Hello, and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOD Radio Network. Today is Friday, November 2nd, and my name is Doug. I'm your host, and with me in our virtual studio from all over the planet are Elliot, Tiffany, and Erica. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Uh, sorry about the delay, folks. We had some... Uh, some technical difficulties, I guess you could say. Um, I open a cold one now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> Since our show is on alcohol today, are you uh, kind of priming nice the pump little here? little cold one. None of the hard <laughs> stuff, though. <laughs> <laughs> She's a soda toddler. <laughs> oh, soda. Even worse. <laughs> so, no, as I said, our show is on alcohol today. Taboos or not taboos? That is the question. Mm-hmm. Alcohol consumption is one of humanity's most socially sanctioned drugs. Seems like it's pretty acceptable, while all kinds of other ones aren't. Uh, humans have been serving up the booze for tens of thousands of years, maybe even longer. You know, mm-hmm. as long as fruit has been fermenting, we've probably been having alcohol. Um, and it will surely continue to be so until the end of the, in, to the end of time with or without the blessing of the health authorities. So at this point, it seems like the medical establishment can't seem to make up its mind about alcohol. One day there's a study that comes out that says it's good. There's another study that comes out that says it's bad. So we're going to try and sort through some of that today. Talk about alcohol. Some personal anecdotes of ragers we've been involved in. And if you can consider yourself a healthy person, if you imbibe, indeed, at all, is alcohol and what's paleo? considered what's considered a reasonable minimal consumption as opposed to binge drinking? Well, according to the CDC, they consider one drink to be no more than a little over a half an ounce of pure alcohol. But is anything pure alcohol like mm. grain alcohol? Moonshine. Okay, so a little more. One drink is. 0.6 ounces of pure alcohol or 12 ounces of beer or five ounces of wine. And they consider moderate consumption to be one drink a day for women and up to two drinks a day for men. And they say that binge drinking is five or more drinks for a man or four or more drinks for a woman. And this has to happen on the same day, like within. A few hours of each other and over the last month and then they consider binge drinking or heavy alcohol use is uh binge drinking on five or more days in the past month five days out of the month yeah i would think the binge drinking could be like once a month and you'd still yeah well it's a binge it's a binge yeah like that's basically binging more than more than once a week Mm mm-hmm yeah, that sounds a bit outrageous. That's borderline alcoholic to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like, it's so confusing because some, some, there was a study that actually came out that showed that, and it was, it's like, it, it's kind of, it defies logic. And I think there's a reason for that. But they basically were saying that moderate consumption is okay. More than that is bad but also less than that is bad. Mm -hmm. They were showing that 
your chances it was it was based on cancer and your chances of getting cancer increased if you weren't drinking enough and moderate consumption i think in that study was one drink a day or something like that it was every day it was like you know you're drinking on average like a glass of wine a day or something like that and if you're drinking less than that you're going to get cancer and if you're drinking more than that you're also going to get cancer and That's it just sounds silly. so well it, it, exactly and I think that part of the problem with these studies is that a lot of them are uh, epidemiological studies. So they just take a group of people and they say, hey, what did you, how many drinks did you have over the last year? And people are supposed to sit there and remember how many drinks they had over the past year. And then they put all that data together and they say, well, let's, you know, try and eliminate some of the confound, confounding factors like, you know, smoking, crappy diet, where you live, your socioeconomic status and all that kind of stuff. And then they say, well, it looks like the pe there's a, a, you know, a correlation between how many drinks people had and you know, whether or not they got cancer. But the thing is, there's so many different factors that could play into that. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's something about drinking behavior that you know, would also lead to less cancer or more cancer. You know, it, it's just there's so much there's so much in there that can kind of confuse the issue. So I don't mm -hmm. like they, they always say you're not supposed to draw conclusions from epidemiological studies but but it's done all always, the time <laughs> always do especially in the media like there'll just be study finds that if you don't start drinking right now you're going to get cancer mm -hmm. i think it would also matter what you were drinking yeah because there's it a big might. difference between taking shots every night once you get home from work <laughs> and then drinking a 12 pack or of Bud Light or whatever new fangled Bud with, uh, you know, what do they call it now? Uh, I can't remember. So mm -hmm. I maybe had too many drinks last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is alcohol besides fermented fruit? So we got the fermented fruit angle, but then some alcohol they use hops and yeast and Beer. barley. <laughs> And then yeah. some, they ferment a potato. Vodka. Ah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. How many vodkas out there are actually still using potatoes? I think they all use corn now. Oh. Well, that's a Russians anyway. use potatoes. Yeah, they still do. Yeah. So yeah. they don't take that into account either. But it's basically like the yeast ferments whatever carbohydrates are there. Mm -hmm. And they poop out alcohol. And then yeah. you drink that alcohol and you get drunk. Yeah. Our chatter said it's ethanol. Isn't that what they put in gasoline? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why they call it fire water. Yeah. So basically when you drink, you are drinking the poisonous byproducts of the bacteria. Fermentation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, more or less. Um, and I think, yeah, it should be established that there isn't really any question about the fact that alcohol is a toxin. Mm -hmm. It is toxic to us. I mean, I guess, you know, that's not, it shouldn't really be that surprising because all you have to do is have a few drinks and you can probably recognize that, you know, it's not really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You can feel the pain. Let's just say that, especially the next morning. 
And uh, although when I was a teenager, I could get away with, uh, you know, overindulging quite regularly without too much of an issue. As I got older, it uh, became readily apparent that I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, I think so that I was lucky it, in the sense that when I first went to college and lived in a dorm, I got super, super drunk one night at a party and I was drinking some stuff in a big barrel. They called it <laughs> hairy buffalo and it had fruit in it. And I guess like a bunch of different alcohols poured in it and they let it sit all day. And then I also had like, I was drinking like a two liter of some alcoholic grape drink. Oh. And I got so sick. I was on the floor in front of the toilet, just hoping oh. to get everything out. And I was so sick and sick the entire next day and probably the day after that, that I never, ever, ever, ever drank that much again. And I kind of had like a two drink limit for the rest of my life after that on the rare occasions when I did drink, but I just don't like to taste. Mm. I had a similar situation. I was definitely over 21. <laughs> I um, drank two bottles of wine and same oh thing. God. So sick, the sickest I've ever been. And I don't like wine. I've never liked wine. I think I go back to that experience all those years ago and am reminded even when you smell it. Mm -hmm. Now, cooking with it, that's different. But as far as enjoying the taste of wine, not real big yeah. on that. Mm. So alcohol um, is it's the byproduct of, of fermentation. So you have microorganisms like yeast. Uh, they basically metabolize um, sugar in various things like fruits and they produce lots of different substances and one of those is ethanol and when we consume um, the alcoholic product so the wine or the beer or whatever you're drinking um, it's really quite rapidly absorbed into the body um, and so when it gets into the stomach, uh, you have enzymes in the stomach, which um, one of them is called alcohol dehydrogenase. And this basically converts the ethanol into something called acetaldehyde. So this is like a seriously, seriously toxic um, substance. And um, this is like rapidly absorbed into the body. Um, and so the, the calories that you get from from alcohol um, are preferentially burned over the calories that you are getting from food. And, um, yeah, so they, they go to the liver, basically, this acetaldehyde stuff. And then this is detoxified by various enzymes. Um, one of the enzymes, um, it's part of the cytochrome P450 system, it's called CYP2E1. And um, this is one of the determining factors as to how well someone can tolerate alcohol. So you've got those people who are heavy drinkers who can drink sort of like eight pints and still be, still be standing, wherever you, <laughs> you have the other ones, which are called lightweights, and they get a, a little bit drunk after maybe two. Um, and so there's 
very high individual variability as to how someone metabolizes alcohol. And I think that this um, probably determines how toxic it is. So there seems to be people who can tolerate it fairly well. Um, and that's not to say that it isn't toxic long term. But if they can metabolize it and get rid of it effectively, um, then it's not going to cause that much of an issue uh, in the short term. Whereas other people, um, depending on the, the health of their liver, on the various um, functionality of the enzymes which were involved in detoxifying the alcohol, um, it can be a major problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the main ways that you get rid of alcohol is by using glutathione. So glutathione is an antioxidant, and this helps you to basically get it out of the system. Um, and if someone has poor liver health or say that their body is already overburdened with lots of different toxins, then when they drink alcohol, this can really be problematic. Um, and there's various different effects that it can have. One of them is actually causing the liver to um, store fat. So you have fatty liver disease and then you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And most people hear of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But with alcohol, if someone drinks it for long enough or if they drink enough of it, then it can disrupt the metabolism of, of energy in the liver and it causes the liver to actually store fat in the cells and this can have loads of downstream effects um it can completely screw with someone's sex hormones so mm. this is why they say you get a beer belly and men who drink lots of alcohol typically develop man boobs <laughs> um because it's highly estrogenic mm -hmm. <laughs> and it it can in it can induce type 2 diabetes, um, it can cause obesity, it can cause all of these other downstream effects. Um, so generally, long term, it doesn't seem to be healthy. But in some of the studies, at least, there appears to be um, uh, what you might call a beneficial effect. But how can you weigh out the risks and the benefits? Is is it is it worth it? And it does it depend on what kind of alcohol you're drinking as well? Because there's lots of different types of alcohol. So is drinking half a bottle of vodka the same as having an organic red wine? Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, so these are all questions that kind of need to be asked when we're talking about the concept of is alcohol healthy or is it unhealthy? And when you see a lot of the headlines um, about drinking alcohol, oh, you know, you can drink this amount per day and, and this is part of a healthy lifestyle and stuff. Um, I think it's, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of the, the individual ability to actually deal with alcohol, that enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase um, people can be genetically predisposed to have a lot of that or to not. Mm -hmm. And apparently Asians um, tend to not have as much of that alcohol dehydrogenase and tend to have a lower 
tolerance. It's a tendency, you know, it's not, you can't pick out individuals and say, make any kind of conclusion about it. But um, I found that kind of interesting. I would say probably Native Americans too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Well, there was lots of stories about how um, Europeans, when they first got to Native America or America, (laughs) (laughs) um, feeding them alcohol, it made a ton of them sick. And there's, I'm sure I've come across some statistics about how Native um, Americans or people of Native American descent um, are more likely to be alcoholic um, or, or, or have, get, uh, suffer from negative consequences of alcohol consumption. And I think that's interesting because does it suggest that perhaps there was um, a, a hereditary ability to, to deal with alcohol because of the consumption of our ancestors, maybe, you know, the past thousand, two thousand years or something. Um, but when you introduce that to a new population who hasn't necessarily had that consumption in their ancestry, then um, does that render that, that type of person uh, less able to deal with that? And that's one of the arguments um, for the Asian population as well. Mm-hmm. Is that perhaps in their history they they didn't consume as much um, as as the people of European descent? Well, wouldn't that be kind of true for everybody? Because I'm sure there was a period of time in history where nobody drank alcohol because nobody knew how to make it yet. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, I don't know. But then. Um, not that I necessarily agree with this standpoint, but there is an argument that some people might make that occasionally uh, Paleolithic ancestors may have come across <laughs> may have come across some spoiled fruit, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm not sure how much alcohol you'd be able to get from that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I've seen videos of monkeys eating like fruit that had gone Ah. fermented and getting all wasted and (laughs) getting tipsy and it's like and the other i've seen another video too where it was like outside of a resort i can't remember what country it was in one with monkeys though and (laughs) the monkeys would come up to like unattended drinks and drink them Mm. like they really liked alcohol and it was really it was a hilarious video because the monkeys get all drunk and they're like wobbling around and all that kind of stuff so i mean not that you know, our Paleolithic ancestors were monkeys, but clearly, like, it exists in the animal world as well, this kind of mm-hmm. attraction to alcohol. So would I, they have, I would think that... Sorry, if there was any kind of food or drink left unattended somewhere and they had access to it, they probably would have drank it anyway, whether or not well, yeah, it was alcohol. It seemed like they they wanted the booze. <laughs> like, that's what it seemed like. <laughs> hmm. Okay. We'd have to do a scientific study. Exactly. Like put just put like water, booze, and then something else that was sweet and see which yeah. one the monkey preferred. Yeah. Or just a Coke and a and a rum and coke. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, whenever I see some of these headlines because they always have these splashy headlines like it's okay to 
drink once a day and still be healthy. Mm. But a lot of people complain that all of these claims about alcohol's benefits are really exaggerated because there's been studies showing that it can improve memory or reduce the risk of heart disease. We heard about that with the whole French paradox thing and the resveratrol and the wine. Mm. When really maybe it wasn't the wine, maybe it was the amount of saturated fats that the Frenchies ate. Um, They also say that, yeah, uh, alcohol can make you thinner, which goes against what everybody seems to know, like common sense wise, because they've seen people getting beer, beer bellies after drinking a lot of beer. So there's all these claims out there uh, that alcohol can be good for you. And I wonder why, like, why is alcohol the only drug that's pretty much sanctioned all over the world? Like certain cases, like Islamic world, they don't, they say don't drink, but of course they drink. Um, Why is it? socially sanctioned so much it's become such a thing that we actually have to have a show where we wonder whether it's healthy or not when it's i mean it's sugar water and it's a toxin in high doses or higher doses depending on the person so it's become so accepted and so much a part of our daily life that we actually have to question whether it's good for us and i find that kind of weird it is kind of a bizarre thing that it's kind of socially acceptable to consume something toxic until you're like stupid. Yeah. And stumbling around, slurring your words. Chances are you're not going to remember a lot of what you did. But this is like the probably the most popular pastime like around the world. Yeah, even That's if you, you do. don't get drunk off of it like it's totally normal like you come home from work after a long day and you unwind with the drink or someone will have a nightcap and it's nobody bats an eye but say you want to come home from work and you know take some shrooms (laughs) 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 like what are you doing that's not normal yeah Yeah, I mean, it's kind of true. It, it is kind of a weird thing, and I, I don't know exactly what it is. I mean, we could put our tinfoil hats on and say, oh, well, you know, drugs that make people stupider obviously are going to be more um, acceptable to the powers that be, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like clearly, you know, I don't think alcohol really, you could say that it, it makes anybody more aware mm-hmm. or uh, more productive I don't know. I think it's a it's a really big part of the whole food industry too and marketing and so um, with the change in people being more informed about healthy eating, you know, you'll go to a fancy restaurant and they'll have all this, you know, organic grass-fed beef with special sauces and then a wine pairing. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like I think it's a marketing thing too. It's huge money. I mean, and if you've ever worked in a bar, it's like that's where they make the money is on the alcohol. And and yeah. so maybe the news headlines, like you were saying, the French study, like it's it's more marketing to get people to participate, even though they may know that it's not the best thing for them. 
And just like with other studies, a lot of these studies saying that alcohol benefits this and that are funded by big booze corporations. Yeah. There yeah. was recently that NIH, NIH, National Institute of Health study that was shut down because um, there was a New York Times piece that was, I think it was the Times, that released a, a thing that was basically saying, well, by the way, um, this huge NIH study um, that's kind of definitively trying to figure out whether alcohol is good or bad is getting like tons of funding, like millions upon millions of dollars. I think it was 67 million or something like that from alcohol companies. Yeah, the five so, largest alcohol companies too. Yeah, and that's they're not alone in that. Like if mm -hmm. you dig into a lot of these studies where they're actually talking about how good alcohol is for you, you're going to find some like booze companies that are in there funding mm -hmm. it. So it's, uh, you really have to take all that with a, with a grain of salt, especially when, you know, if you, if you look into it a little bit more, um, you will often find people who have kind of like torn apart these studies, kind mm -hmm. of looked at them and said, you know, this is really not a study that's telling us anything like this is, this is pretty bad. So I think it's, it's pretty clearly that there, there are definitely marketing interests behind this but then just to throw a spanner in the works or <laughs> kind of be the devil's advocate um just for a minute when i was um looking at the some of the research on tobacco a lot of the um beneficial effects were found in studies um that had some connection to the um, tobacco companies so that they were funding it and now it kind of it brings up the question okay so if you are um, if you have a product and you want to show that it is beneficial then you're gonna fund research um, to do that yeah but does mm -hmm. that always necessarily mean that the research has been intentionally skewed no. to show that beneficial effect. You know, is it just that you would like to shine light on the fact that there actually may be some benefits to it? You know, is there always corruption involved? I don't mm -hmm. dismiss that there is a lot of corruption in all branches of science, but at the same time, um, I think we also have to consider that just because of a, a study is is funded in some way by an industry it may not necessarily mean that it is being corrupted yeah i no. know that i know that there's a tendency to to think that but at the same time um yeah it may not always be the case no know? i totally agree like i i think that that's true you can't just necessarily dismiss something it is something that has to be taken into account but like you know when we were doing our show on salt you know one of the um the, the groups arguing for not putting kind of ridiculous limits on salt consumption for like dietary recommendations was like a potato chip company. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's like they had all this science that was backing stuff up and it's like, you know, you don't, you want to be careful about trusting a potato chip company about yeah. you know, anything regarding health. But at the same time, it doesn't automatically discount all of their stuff. Now, that all that being said, with this particular NIH study, um, they 
when they were investigating, they found that the alcohol companies had um, more of a hand in the study design mm. um, than they should have. You know, basically, I would say that if an industry is funding a study, they should be giving money and stepping back, yeah, and doing nothing else. And but it it sounds like the the authors of the study were contacting them regularly. They were meeting with them and uh, you know about study design and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, that one, I think in that case, it was clear that there was corruption going on. And it stinks of foul play. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But but no, I think I think that's a valid point, Elliot. Yeah. On on the topic um, that we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago, um, you know, why why how is alcohol? We know that it, it can be extremely toxic so many people how has it gotten to the point where it's this socially accepted thing and it's so common um and i think part of that at least is if if you examine human psychology and the way that human beings typically live their lives um when you look at some of the effects that alcohol has it's it's understandable why people would turn to it, uh, especially in today's modern world. Mm. Um, it it it's an anti-stressor, you know. Now it's a stressor on your body, but mm -hmm. it it really is a, a great antidepressant just in the short term. Like uh, I I can attest to that somewhat. Um, if I've had a particularly difficult day or if I'm feeling negative about something, um, sometimes a glass of wine, not that I do this very often, but sometimes a glass of wine or something or an alcoholic beverage can kind of take the edge off. Mm -hmm. You know, it can, mm -hmm. can really take the edge off of life um, when people are feeling so bogged down with the stresses of their life. And I think it's somewhat understandable why people would turn to this you know, when there are um, no other ways to, to sort of deal with that. Likewise, for those people who are anxious, you know, socially awkward, socially anxious, alcohol is, I mean, it is without doubt a great way to lower the inhibitions. And if you're the kind of person... It's a social who, lubricant. Yeah, certainly. If you're the kind of person who finds it difficult to start a conversation with other people or finds it difficult to fit in with the social groups, say, for instance, if you've been invited to uh, a work do with your colleagues and you don't feel particularly confident uh, in yourself, uh, confident in having a conversation with, with others and, and, and these kinds of things, having a drink or two can really take the edge off of that as well. And... I can also understand why someone would turn to alcohol in that situation. I think that's generally what, why people do it. Mm. Um, and another thing, uh, it was Mark Sisson mentioned this in one of his articles. He was talking about how it can, it can basically just bring you or it can promote uh, feelings of joy, feelings of happiness and feelings of connection with others. You know, like, mm -hmm. so if you've got a group of friends sat around a table and they've had a couple of drinks, uh, there's probably, probably going to be lots of laughter <laughs> and memories. 
And this is, I think, maybe, maybe just one of the things that is actually part of perhaps some of the health promoting effects, if mm. there are any, this feeling of connectedness with others, um, the, you know, the laughs and the joys and all of these positive experiences that people um, explain when they drink alcohol, you know, that they experience. I think that those things in and of themselves are really good for your health. You know, having feeling connected with others and being able to express yourself. And for some people who can't do that ordinarily, um, when they have a couple of drinks, they might be able to overcome whatever issues they have in terms of socializing. And I think that that is probably really great in terms of um, in terms of promoting longevity and things like that. So that may be one of the benefits that kind of can be weighed up against the risks. If that makes sense. Well, just maybe to unpack that a little bit, there was um, a study back in 2015 um, that actually found that there was similarities between the effects of alcohol and oxytocin. Um, so oxytocin is uh, the hormone, they, it's nicknamed the love hormone. And it kind of is something that kind of drops inhibitions, make you feel more connected to others. Um, it's a hormone that's released a lot in, uh, during, um, pregnancy and, uh, and after birth, when you have an infant like this, it, it's what promotes a bond between the mother and the infant. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, it does have a darker side as well, because apparently it drops inhibitions and people can actually end up getting more, um, aggressive, but, um, which also kind of explains alcohol in some way <laughs> so although it's it's working on different pathways apparently the the actual effects of them are quite similar they both seem to affect uh gaba receptors in the brain um and affect what was it uh transmission in the prefrontal cortex and limbic structures so and they both have like an anti-anxiety effect and all those sorts of things so in a way it's kind of like sort of taking like a fake hormone or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I can see what you're saying, Elliot, I do. Um, but I guess I just question whether using an external source that is actually somewhat toxic is good because you, especially considering that it um, promotes dependency. So I think maybe if you could find ways of actually increasing natural oxytocin release, it might be better than having a couple of drinks. Yeah, I would agree. Hug your animal because well. <laughs> hugging releases yeah. oxytocin too. <laughs> well, there you go. But I don't yeah, think the uh, average person is going to seek out alternative ways to foster connectedness <laughs> with their fellow man. Instead of that's having probably a glass the, of wine. Yeah, that's probably the quick and easy route to go to that we can expect most people to take that route. Yeah, this but, is it. I, I, um, just to clarify, I, I wasn't, I'm not advocating that. I was just no, saying no. that might be an explanation as to why people do it sure. in general. You know. Hmm. If only it would stop at that point. But of course, people have to dial it up to 10. And that's when a lot of the bad effects of alcohol come out. Because I'm sure uh, a lot of people in our audience have seen like nasty drunks. Like I know some yeah. happy drunks, but I've seen some nasty drunks. Like, I mean, there's always stories about um, uh, a parent that's an alcoholic and just 
just wreaks havoc on the lives of their families. And then there's the drunk drivers that kill people and just like uh, people drugging each other or spiking each other's drinks or plying people with drinks in order to take advantage of them sexually. Mm. So there's a very, very dark side to alcohol too. I mean, too bad it doesn't just stop at the joy and the connectiveness and doesn't like fall over the cliff a lot of times. (laughs) Sometimes it does, sure. And I think that, you know, especially like, you know, young adults who are kind of experimenting with it for the first time have a tendency to go too far with it. But apparently there's also like there's particular types of people um, in their response to alcohol, as you know, Elliot was kind of covering before. But I was watching actually a Jordan Peterson video. It was one of his older ones. And he was describing some research that he had done on um, uh, people drinking, essentially, and like what, you know, the the amount that they're drinking. I, I can't remember exactly what he was trying to discover, but what he was saying is that they found that there was a certain percentage of people who... And, you know, you've encountered these people before, you know, the people who kind of start, once they've started, they kind of can't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't really stop until they get blackout drunk. Um, and it's like, apparently it's a certain type of person who, um, after when the alcohol, blood alcohol level is rising, they get like a hyperstimulatory effect. They get really kind of um, stimulated by it. Like it increases their heart rate and... You know, in, in a lot of, in most cases, alcohol acts as a depressant. But apparently in these people, as long as they are continuing to consume it, they get this kind of stimulatory effect, this high off it, essentially, and which is why they just keep on going. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, among a responsible adults, most people are the type where they kind of have a drink or have two and they're kind of like, okay, I'm done. I don't, I don't need to keep going here. You know, things are going to get out of control if I do. Whereas there are certain people who don't have that because Mm -hmm. of this kind of perceived benefit that they get from it. Well, I think that in some cases too, like say it's the parent who's an alcoholic and comes home and terrorizes everybody after a night at the bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that in some cases, alcohol can be blamed for what is really just a sick person. Like they probably would have been a complete jerk and abusive even without being drunk. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Like I've known people who are just nasty, just period, even when they weren't drunk. But then when, when they get drunk, uh, it's like the inhibitions, like their, their need to hide behind a mask of sanity is just gone. And yeah, all, right. the, all the craziness just comes out when they drink. But it doesn't mean that they weren't crazy and evil anyway. <laughs> well, there, there was a very interesting... Um study which was done and what they found was that what the researchers concluded was that alcohol consumption can it can have an effect on your perception whereby you start to assign intentionality where you wouldn't have before Um, and so you perceive events as if they are intentionally um, driven by um, let, let me give you an example so for instance you're in a bar and someone steps on your toe or someone barges you in the shoulder by accident um, ordinarily you might just see it as an accident and you may say oh okay that's fine but 
for some people at least what it can what the alcohol can do is actually skew your perception um into um essentially perceiving that the person did it intentionally um and we all know of the we've probably all experienced being in a bar and witnessing people getting into violent brawls you know that i know lots of people from my sort of early or late teenage years who would i i wouldn't describe them as violent people um and this may have something to do with what you were just saying tiff about how it lowers inhibitions and can sort of show the true color of someone but at the same time i knew people who were not necessarily vi violent um but who would really um really become quite violent when they drank and there was usually some kind of triggering event so something small like someone looking at them the wrong way or what they perceived to be looking at them the wrong way when in fact probably nothing happened in reality um but this is quite interesting because if it can do that to someone um then it's potentially going to drive a lot of problematic things you know and mm -hmm. and we know the statistics you know how many um how much how many problems does alcohol cause in society there's quite a lot so if mm -hmm. you, you look at every single different aspect of that you've got drink driving which counts for like a quarter or a third of all um vehicle fatalities so road, road traffic accidents which lead to fatality like a third of them are due to the driver being drunk um and then you have the violence you have i mean in the uk we're particularly renowned well we are renowned for binge drinking so um all around the world actually people know brits um for for the fact that they go out and they drink copious amounts of alcohol get absolutely bladdered um but this really puts a strain on the on the police force you know um if you go out at night in the uk in a city um the amount of binge drinking and violence that is occurring outside the bars outside the clubs um and the strain that this is putting on the on the police and the hospitals i mean the hospital admissions are crazy um and then you have all the downstream effects of that it's like this is causing a big problem in society you know yeah and that's not even including like the family issues or even individual issues of people who are you know essentially alcoholic gabor mate calls it a spiritual sickness you know that people are kind of filling filling a hole or avoiding i guess is a better way of putting it kind of avoiding uh the negative aspects of life um mm -hmm. by drinking there was one actual um a study that actually found that alcohol affects the gene that makes your brain forget the bad times and remember only the good ones and apparently it does this it doesn't actually it doesn't actually affect the gene apparently what it does is it affects the protein that it makes that usually would have you kind of store memories and it affects that in some way that um, makes it so you forget the negative memories so and that could be why you know somebody might have had a pretty uh crazy party night and they remember it as being oh yeah it was a great night and stuff and they don't remember all the like 
social guffaws and offending and the people, vomiting. the vomiting, all that kind of stuff. They don't remember those aspects of it. And um, apparently it was something like if you have one drink, it does it only lasts for like 20 minutes or something like that. But if you have three drinks, it'll basically last all night. Mm. Yeah, I think it was one drink uh, lasts one hour and three one drinks hour, okay. 24 hours. Yeah, there you go. But didn't they do that study on fruit flies? Yeah. Was that Donald? Still. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the fruit flies remember all the rocking good times they had during that party <laughs> the night before. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> Nonetheless, I do think that, that people um, uh, can get caught up in a cycle where they are using alcohol in that way to mm -hmm. kind of just escape the negative aspects of their life. Well, it kind of goes back to what you all were talking about earlier about having that one drink, you know, in an awkward social situation to kind of get break the ice, so to speak. And then where is that line that goes from just having that one drink and then moving on with the evening to another one and another one and another one. And, you know, again, with the memory thing, it's like you're not even going to really know until somebody tells you the next day, like, look, you were a real ass last night, you know, and even though you <laughs> yeah. thought you were the life of the party and having a great time, until you get feedback from others who actually <laughs> were sober and watched your behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's true, as Tiffany was saying, there are some people that are the life of the party and then they're great. And, and then there are those other ones where it starts off like that and then like yeah. it seems to be a threshold to cross over into the dark side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The messy drunk, essentially. Yeah. The sloppy, angry drunk. Well, well, there was another study, another reason why I'm not a super big fan of alcohol, but not to say that I waggle my finger in anybody's face saying, oh, don't drink, don't drink. People can do what, what they want to do, whatever. True. But um, there's studies that show that alcohol can literally turn your brain to mush. Now, this is with uh, prolonged use but I've actually witnessed this myself in relatives. Like you would say, oh, it's just because, you know, they're getting older, but you notice that they can't remember anything or they keep repeating the same stuff over and over again. And they're just in their 60s. So it's not like they're ancient or anything. But um, prolonged use of alcohol can actually make your brain shrink and you lose both gray and white matter. And there's uh, the, the bridge in your brain, the corpus callosum, that collect, co connects the left and the right hemisphere and aids in communication between those hemispheres. The, that can shrink as well with alcohol use. And well, they said that in some cases it actually disappears. Oh, wow. It's actually gone. Mm -hmm. So is it any wonder that alcohol is a big factor in the development of dementia. I think there's a special kind of dementia that is directly attributed to alcohol. I think it's called Wernicke's dementia. And I suspect mm -hmm. that um, a lot of the people that I used to take care of in hospitals actually had that. because Their families would come and talk about how much of a big drunk they were in their younger days. And now they have dementia. 
I kind of liken it to like a pickling effect. It's almost like, Mm. uh, you know, a cucumber being pickled. (laughs) And um, because I have family members like that, and you really watch them deteriorate over time. Mm. And especially with the brain function, like with the prefrontal cortex and reasoning and judgment, like sometimes you're like, oh, my God, this person is completely insane. Like, (laughs) But they would never see that. Yeah, because normally the brain has all these deep grooves in it. But there was a a picture that was in one of the articles. The brain was almost smooth. (laughs) So So. what you were just talking about, Tiff, um, Mm. the Wernicke's um, dementia. Yeah. um, There's a a lot of those cases. um, I think the technical name is Wernicke's encephalopathy. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that specifically is because of alcohol's effect on um, the B vitamins, specifically um, one which is called thiamine, and this is vitamin B1. Um, So alcohol is is really renowned to rapidly deplete uh, thiamine. And long-term... Um, this can lead to a downregulation of the enzymes involved in energy metabolism, which use thiamine. Okay, so essentially, you have enzymes which need cofactors to work, and one of those cofactors um, is the vitamin B1. Okay, it's all of the B vitamins, but specifically um, with relation to sugar metabolism, vitamin B1 is very important, and when you have a case of chronic alcoholism, then um, it leads to to a serious depletion of this vitamin. And the machinery which ordinarily use this vitamin um, are, are down-regulated, essentially. So you, you have less machinery to, to function. Um, and that's really to match the, the low levels that are, that are present in the body. Um, mm-hmm. And so... If you look at the way that thiamine is used in the body, it's interesting because it's used in all cells. So it's used in energy metabolism. It's how you break down sugar and fats and turn it into energy. Um, but really, thiamine is is extremely important in the brain and the nervous system. So all throughout the, um, the brain, you have neurons, and the neurons enabled to fire, um, they need to be in a healthy state. And... Thiamine is extremely important for brain function. It's it's extremely important for the uh, production of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which is involved in all kinds of different things. Um, and when you have low thiamine, then the brain and the nervous system are the two places that this really um, happen or this this affects first. Um, and so, with alcoholics, when they will go to um, seek medical treatment they will be prescribed intravenous thiamine and um the com- conventional medical treatment for that is is like i think it's a week long a week mm-hmm. long of intravenous thiamine therapy but actually yeah, we would call it a banana bag because it was kind of yellow in color <laughs> right okay yeah so what they've actually shown is that when someone is chronically deficient um, just giving a week's worth or something is is simply not enough. 
And actually, you may need to give really high doses intravenously for up to a year. Whoa. To, mm. Yeah, to, to re... Um, be, because there's the downregulation of the machinery in the cell, you need to really attack it with a high dose, but then sustain that high dose to essentially convey the message that the vitamin is in um, substantial or it is is in adequate supply and so that the body will start producing the machinery again to match the supply um, and so this is like a real big problem uh, and even for non-alcoholics just people who regularly consume alcohol um, it can it can have a massive effect on various of the B, the B vitamins but you know especially thiamine and I've just finished reading a book actually it was by uh, Dr. Derek Lonsdale and he specialized in thiamine therapy and he treated many alcoholics throughout the years but he was actually saying that this is a problem not just for alcoholics but actually for people who who consume alcohol on a daily basis um, mm -hmm. or, or say you know, a couple of days a week, this is really going to substantially increase your requirements for various of the, the B vitamins. And the problem is with the modern or the standard American diet, it's so um, it's so low in these these things anyway that it, this is potentially like a, a real big problem. Yeah, it's crazy, though, because there are studies out there that will tell you that drinking regular amounts is good for your brain. <laughs> There's actually even one study that um, said, I think they had done it in mice, and they showed that um, moderate alcohol consumption actually helps with the brain's lymphatic system of clearing out all the uh, junk from the, the brain, which usually happens when you go to sleep. Mm. Um, they said that it was actually helping with that, and they were like, oh, maybe this is why the brain um, actually benefits from moderate alcohol consumption. But then at the same time, there was another study that found, and this was a mouse study as well, that alcohol actually kills brain stem cells. <laughs> so that the, the stem cells in the brain, so you cannot produce new brain cells because you, you're killing off so all the, the, the stem cells. alcohol kills the stem cells, but it does a good job at helping your brain and it clean clears it out up. the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to that... Um, if you look at maintaining the health of the, the brain, um, much of the clearing out process, you know, the de detoxification and the regeneration of the cells in the brain actually occurs at nighttime when you sleep. Mm. Um, and throughout the various sleep cycles, different things happen. And if you look at the effect that alcohol has on the quality of the sleep, mm -hmm. it's quite amazing because although it might make someone feel tired, it actually um, is a powerful disruptor of the way that the, the body actually maintains sleep. So it disrupts deep sleep and it can affect REM sleep um, and it can raise body temperature. So it can suppress the release of melatonin, which is an antioxidant in the brain. Um, and I've, I've actually measured this myself. I haven't measured the melatonin, but I have measured my sleep after I um, have consumed an alcoholic beverage um, within a couple of hours before going to bed. So I use um, a kind of device which basically measures the different kinds of the different sleep cycles, a body temperature, temperature and things. 
And I have found that even just one drink, so say like a gluten-free beer or a small glass of wine or something, maybe three hours before going to bed, does have a very measurable effect on the way that I go to sleep or, or the, the quality of the sleep. So the duration is the same, but the quality is, is vastly affected. And, mm. you know, for, you think for people who are coming home and having a glass of wine every night, um, it may not be pro problematic in the short term, but actually if you think about that is like chronic sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. when this person thinks that they're having healthy sleep, but actually their brain is not able to get rid of all of the, the waste effectively. And so this is going to potentially lead to something like Alzheimer's or dementia later on down the line. And this is exactly what we were just talking about, because there is uh, research which, which shows that there is a very strong correlation between alcohol use and dementia. That's interesting, because, you know, I'd often drawn the connection that, you know, I, or I, I wondered to myself at one point, like, how much of, you know, like a hangover or just not feeling good the next day, like how much of that is actually a result of the alcohol and how much of it is just because of disrupted sleep? Mm -hmm. Because I, um, when I first started getting into health and holistic nutrition and stuff, I, I decided I was going to stop drinking altogether, even though I wasn't drinking much at that point anyway. But I was still, you know, go out and hang out with people and like stay out late and that kind of thing and, and you know, not get a a very good sleep the next, you know, that night. And I would wake up the next day and I'd be like, well, how is it that I feel like crappy as if I had a couple of drinks or something like that when I didn't drink anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was just because staying out late was actually just disrupting my sleep. And that, that was what made me feel crappy the next day. Mm. There's also the effect that, um, alcohol can have on your blood sugar, especially if you're diabetic. And say you binge drink one night and your blood sugar spikes really high, you go to sleep and your blood sugar goes down really, really, really low and you end up in a diabetic coma and you die like somebody that I know. <laughs> so mm. that's another thing to look out for, those spikes in blood sugar. And I can't believe that there was actually a study out that said that alcohol is beneficial for diabetics. Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's it's sugar. How can it be good? Well, they all they think a high carb diet is good for diabetes. <laughs> diabetes yeah. So. Well, we talked a little bit before about the the French paradox, and that mm -hmm. one has always been like really grinds my gears. Because it came about when, you know, the, the dietary fat hypothesis was kind of really big. It's like fat, saturated fat causes heart disease. Everybody knows that. And then they're like, well, wait a minute. The French eat a lot of saturated fat, but they have hardly any heart disease. So what's going on there? And instead of being like, you know, maybe our theory doesn't work. Maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and like, you know, rework this or something. They were like, oh, it must be the wine. That's got to be it. They're drinking red wine. So then they start like super analyzing red wine and going, what is it about the red wine that makes them, you know, avoid heart disease? And then they come up with this thing that's in red wine called resveratrol. 
And they're like, oh, that's it. It's a super antioxidant. So that's what it is. It protects them from the heart disease. You know, all of this is actually BS though. Because first of all, the amount of red wine you would have to drink to be able to get enough resveratrol to actually have a beneficial effect was something like 40 bottles. <laughs> like in <anyway. laughs> So that was clearly not the, not the answer to the French paradox. I mean, it isn't a paradox at all because saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. So the fact that mm -hmm. the French were eating lots of saturated fat and didn't have heart disease was not an anomaly. That was like, oh, that, that actually makes sense. It's, you know, obviously it's like what they should have done is looked at the Americans and said, well, maybe it's not the saturated fat they're eating. Maybe it's the fake fat. Maybe it's the vegetable oils. Maybe it's the sugar. Maybe it's all this other crap that the French people at the time weren't eating. You know, of course, now French heart disease rates are rising because they're eating more and more of this processed garbage. Anyway, don't buy the resveratrol BS. Well, it seems like most of the articles that we read about the benefits of alcohol were all on the heart. Did you folks notice that? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, back to kind of what Tiffany was saying and you guys too, like the, so maybe you have a little bit healthier of a heart, but everything else in your life <laughs> is falling apart. <laughs> you know, I mean being in a family with an alcoholic yeah so you maybe have a strong heart but you're completely an, a traumatized mess <laughs> so yeah. i don't know what my point was about all that but again back to all these studies saying it's good for you it's good for you and it's obviously not that good for you yeah yeah i mean like tiff was saying before i don't you know i'm not a teetotaler I'm not going to like judge anybody for drinking. And I think if people do it responsibly, it can be okay. But I think people just have to be realistic about it and realize that it is toxic, that they mm -hmm. are taking in a toxin and they should, you know, work accordingly, you know, be careful about it and don't, uh, don't overindulge or indulge too often. Yeah. And if you're not a drinker, certainly don't take up drinking for any supposed <laughs> health benefits because there really no. aren't any over the long term. But if you uh, no. want to have some drinks on a holiday or special occasion or something, and other times you're, you're pretty healthy, your diet is healthy, it's no big deal. Yeah. Just make sure and drink equal amounts of water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and just to add to that, probably the type of alcohol that you're drinking is important mm -hmm. as well. Um, so wine is heavily sprayed, like heavily, heavily sprayed with various pesticides. So if you're going to drink wine, I would say drink a good quality one. Um, there's lots of things in the cheap brands there's lots of additives that they mm -hmm. um, use in wine. They use, use all kinds of fillers and preservatives. One of those is actually sulfites. Now, these are naturally occurring in the wine anyway. At different proportions in different types of wines. Um, but they will add these um, as, as like a, a stabilizer and a preservative. And this can be one of the major issues with why or the the cases where people say that they can tolerate alcohol but they can't tolerate um wine and and it's usually due to the sulfites i think because 
you need a, a various set of enzymes to be able to um, metabolize sulfite. And we've spoken about sort of sulfur a couple of times before on the show, but really um, you need molybdenum to do that and you need various other things. And in many people, or some people at least, they do have a bit of a problem metabolizing sulfur. And so in the form of sulfite, sulfite is, is really quite toxic to the cells. It can have all sorts of effects. Uh, one of them is actually inducing like inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, and so I would say that if you're going to drink wine or if you're going to drink cider or something like that, try and make sure it's a good quality organic brand and one that is preferably sulfite free where they don't add the sulfites. Another thing for people is histamine. So various types of alcoholic beverages, such as beers and wines, have lots of naturally occurring histamine. And this can also be a problem if someone gets palpitations or if they get like red ears or a red face when they drink these things, it's probably best to opt out of that and go for something that contains less. Um, and there are certain things that do. Um, you just have to look online for that because I'm not sure exactly what kind of alcohol doesn't. I think the spirits <laughs> don't, but I'm not going to recommend that you drink spirits because I don't think that they're very good. <laughs> mm. um, also, another thing that you can do, which I've actually tried myself um, when I was in a situation where I knew that I was probably going to have some alcohol that night, um, I took quite a large dose of NAC, so this stands for N-acetylcysteine. This is the amino acid cysteine bound to an acetyl group. Um, you can buy it in a powder form. And basically what this does is when you consume it, it is absorbed and it is a precursor to glutathione. And we spoke about glutathione before. That is how you detoxify alcohol. That's one of the ways that you get rid of it. And I think that one of the reasons why people can feel really crappy and have a hangover um, aside from many other things, one of those may be because you've depleted your glutathione and you can't really like detoxify it very well. And so there's been lots of anecdotal accounts of people who take NAC before they go out. I think you can take up to like three grams of it, quite high dose. Um, and this is a fairly, well, a tried and true method um, to sort of uh, prevent that hangover if you can afford it you could go for some liposomal glutathione this would probably be better um, and there are people who say that this helps with the hangover as well there's another thing that they do in japan i just uh watched a video about this actually um apparently curcumin um aside from just having an antioxidant effect has an effect uh and now i can't remember what it was but they apparently take curcumin. There's like a beverage that you can buy, and apparently they sell it in all kinds of like restaurants and bars and stuff like that. And it's like a, a hangover cure or preventative. You drink it beforehand. It's got like 400 milligrams of, uh, of a highly bioavailable curcumin in it. And apparently that, uh, that also will help. I think the glutathione is probably a better idea, though. And probably if you are going to drink something, Although the benefits of the polyphenols are probably massively overstated, 
um, an exaggerated thing that they might have somewhat of a beneficial effect. Because naturally, if you were going to find alcohol in nature, it would be the fermented fruit. Yeah. Mm. And there are always lots of different things in fruits um, that may help you detoxify stuff. And so if you're going to go for like, I mean, again, I come back to red wine. <laughs> I quite like red wine. If I was going to pick something, <laughs> I would drink red wine. Me too. That is typically very high in lots of different polyphenols and all of these different kinds of phytonutrients. And if you were to compare that to like an Alcopop, I don't know if you have those in the US, but we have... Mm uh yeah. brand called wkd and it's basically just like sugar water it's like a mixture of vodka and then loads of sugar and artificial flavorings and it just tastes like some kind of soda or something you don't really know it's alcohol and there's lots of people who drink that stuff i would say never touch that because that stuff <laughs> really is toxic yeah. should i go for like the really sort of most unrefined stuff that you can get if you're going to drink mm -hmm. yeah and don't just drink just because. If you don't like the taste of it, why bother? <laughs> That's my motto. <laughs> to get drunk. Yeah. Why go through all these, jump through all these hoops if it's, you have to like hold your nose when you're drinking alcohol. Fair enough. Yeah. And someone just said on the chat, and this is something that um, lots of people swear by, is... Um, drinking a large glass or two of water before going to bed. Yeah. Uh, and I have certainly noticed in the past that when I drink alcohol, I'm so dehydrated the next morning. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's that recommendation that if someone is going to drink, try to separate the drinks um, with glasses of water or whatever mm -hmm. in between. I can imagine that's probably helpful. Put some salt in it. So <laughs> they're actually adding electrolytes to beer. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> got electrolytes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to what humans Every, crave. Everything the body needs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they are. They're adding electrolytes to beer um, to combat the hangover effect. Huh. So I don't know if that works or not. It would probably be best just not to drink the beer. <laughs> well, for those people like that like beer, beer too, they do add fish bladder to it to make it not um, murky looking. Most, really? yes. And that's a lot of fish dying for their bladders to make Heineken clear and not murky. <laughs> mm. Fish bladder, right? Eh? Yes. That's probably the best thing in the whole game. Yeah, <laughs> <is>. <laughs> Omega threes. <laughs> I like my beer with fish bladder. <laughs> <laughs> well, should uh, should we go to the pet health segment? Okay. This is on animals, of course, and whether they have language. Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week I'm going to share with you a TED Talk 
on the topic of language. All animals communicate, but do they have language? Michael Bishop details the four specific qualities we associate with language and investigates whether or not certain animals utilize some of or all of those qualities to communicate. Listen up and have a great weekend. Bye-bye. All animals communicate. Crabs wave their claws at each other to signal that they're healthy and ready to mate. Cuttlefish use pigmented skin cells called chromatophores to create patterns on their skin that act as camouflage or warnings to rivals. Honeybees perform complex dances to let other bees know the location and quality of a food source. All of these animals have impressive communication systems, but do they have language? To answer that question, we can look at four specific qualities that are often associated with language. Discreteness, grammar, productivity, and displacement. Discreteness means that there is a set of individual units, such as sounds or words, that can be combined to communicate new ideas. Like a set of refrigerator poetry magnets you can rearrange to create different phrases. Grammar provides a system of rules that tells you how to combine those individual units. Productivity is the ability to use language to create an infinite number of messages. And displacement is the ability to talk about things that aren't right in front of you, such as past, future, or fictional events. So, does animal communication exhibit any of these qualities? For crabs and cuttlefish, the answer is no. They don't combine their signals in creative ways. Those signals also don't have to be in a grammatical order. And they only communicate current conditions, like I am healthy or I am poisonous. But some animals actually do display some of these properties. Bees use the moves, angle, duration, and intensity of their waggle dance to describe the location and richness of a food source. That source is outside the hive, so they exhibit the property of displacement. They share that language trait with prairie dogs, which live in towns of thousands and are hunted by coyotes, hawks, badgers, snakes, and humans. Their alarm calls indicate the predator's size, shape, speed, and even for human predators, what the person is wearing and if he's carrying a gun. Great apes like chimps and gorillas are great communicators too. Some have even learned a modified sign language. A chimpanzee named Washo demonstrated discreteness by combining multiple signs into original phrases, like please open, hurry. Coco, a female gorilla who understands more than 1,000 signs and around 2,000 words of spoken English, referred to a beloved kitten that had died. In doing so, she displayed displacement though it's worth noting that the apes in both of these examples were using a human communication system, not one that appeared naturally in the wild. There are many other examples of sophisticated animal communication, such as in dolphins, which use whistles to identify age, location, names, and gender. They can also understand some grammar in a gestural language researchers use to communicate with them. However, grammar is not seen in the dolphin's natural communication. While these communication systems may have some of the qualities of language we've identified, none display all four. 
even Washoe and Coco's impressive abilities are still outpaced by the language skills of most three-year-old humans. An animal's topics of conversation are usually limited. Bees talk about food, prairie dogs talk about predators, and crabs talk about themselves. Human language stands alone due to the powerful combination of grammar and productivity on top of discreteness and displacement. The human brain can take a finite number of elements and create an infinite number of messages. We can craft and understand complex sentences, as well as words that have never been spoken before. We can use language to communicate about an endless range of subjects, talk about imaginary things, and even lie. Research continues to reveal more and more about animal communication. It may turn out that human language and animal communication aren't entirely different, but exist on a continuum. After all, we are all animals. Goat language right there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that's our show for today. Thanks to everybody for listening to all our chatters. Had a pretty active chat today. Mm-hmm. Uh, be sure to tune in to the other two SOT radio programs this weekend. On Saturday, there is the Truth Perspective. And on Sunday, there is Newsreel. And we'll be back next week with another exciting health topic. Until then. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Goodbye.